Hi everyone. So today our guest is Dr. Rasik, and I just wanted to start off by asking, Dr. Rasik, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and your career? Sure. I am a uh, cardiologist and an internal medicine expert. So I do general internal medicine, cardiology, and uh, for a long time I was also doing cardiac surgeries like angioplasties and stents. So I take care of a wide variety of patients. Well, um, the first question we have for you is, can you define health and healthcare disparities and how they're relevant in your field of work? Sure. I mean, healthcare disparities usually aren't a conscious issue, but, but healthcare disparities is when we would take similar populations, maybe from different areas or socioeconomic stratus, and then they get different treatment, not because the guidelines or the medical literature says to do so, but because they're either lacking, they're lacking either qualified doctors, lacking the education to seek out qualified doctors, or they're, they're getting outright biased because of their gender, sex, or race. We have some research about disparities specifically in medical education, and we learned about dermatologic disparities and how in the education there were times where all skin colors were not shown in uh, dermatology textbooks, and that affected um, the curriculum and doctors' ability to teach like, races because um, skin cancer, for example, looks different on other skin types. So our question relating to this is, during your medical training, were you taught about how to deal with health disparities in medicine? Well, they, you know, they always, they never quite, I mean, I graduated med school in 1988, so it really wasn't a hot button topic like it was now or is now. But the, the and I think a lot of the education isn't necessarily go out of its way to be biased. If you're going to look at someone who has a skin cancer like a melanoma, you want it to be as obvious to a student as you can, so you're going to probably show it on a white patient because of the contrast. Uh, but if you're going to look at vitiligo or some of the others, you're probably going to pick an African-American patient because that's going to really stand out when you have lack of pigment in those areas. So I, I think that a lot of times the uh, medical education process, when, when they go by the literature and they're going by things like that, the bias isn't so much um, that they're going out of the way to do it because there are different um, responses to medications that certain um, African-Americans don't do as well with ACE inhibitors like lisinopril than they do with an ARB, whereas Americans that are white tend to be just fine with the lisinopril and the ACE inhibitors. So you really do have to know different gender tendencies, different race tendencies, so the medicines we pick are the right ones. But I think a lot of the stuff that goes on after that becomes a problem, in the education also becomes a problem. A lot of my African-American patients don't think they have to wear sunscreen because they think they kind of have built-in sunscreen. But African-Americans can get melanomas and, and they can get skin cancer. So uh, it is one of my regular, especially in a new patient, I'll ask, do you wear it regularly? And most of them will say no. And I'll say, you know, you, there is African-Americans get melanoma. You've got to wear sunscreen. You can't change physics. You know, the heat from the sun damages the skin. And so I think a lot of it is educating the, the physicians, especially the students, when they go into a certain area, that they, they need to understand the culture and they need to understand the differences in the medical care that, that different races get. Leading off of that, when we were doing research about the COVID pandemic in specific, we found that um, 
especially in Michigan, the statistics brought out like the disproportionate effects on different minorities, such as African-Americans. So for example, just in Michigan alone, while black residents only make up 15% of our population, they actually account for around 30% of the COVID cases and 40% of the deaths. And we know that um, because of this, Governor Whitmer tried to um, reduce this racial disparity gap by creating the Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities. So we just wanted to know, like from a doctor's standpoint, how would you say COVID has directly affected minorities in comparison to their counterparts? There's no question um, that the care that minorities get, especially in the inner city, is inferior. Um, it is it is in an area that is um, not sought after by a lot of doctors. Doctors come out of med school $300,000 in debt. They maybe get into a residency where they get paid sixteen dollars to $22,000 on an internship to work 80-hour work week. They come out with all of this. And the last place they're going to do is go into the inner city, work in a hazardous area. And unfortunately, there's a lack of talent. There's a lack of diligence out there. So what you're getting is probably not the top of the class. Um, patients are getting care from doctors that have no choice. They're not joining these high pollutant suburban uh, areas. And also, uh, which is almost as important, is that they're considered an underserved area. So they get a lot of the, um, the foreign medical graduates uh, in order to keep their license. So they're, they're really not getting that the virus isn't doing anything different to African-Americans than it is to Caucasians. It's just the area that they're in is underserved with high quality physicians. And, and if they wanted instead of making a bunch of commissions and everything, they should make these, if they want COVID money, the suburban hospital system should partner with the inner city system. And they should share their, their people back and forth so that they're getting good quality doctors doing the same thing for every single patient. And it is not the case I have seen. That's terrible. It, it is. And, and uh, when I got out of, uh, I was fortunate enough not to have, I mean, I had a lot of debt, but not as much as some of my colleagues. So I started out in Sinai in Detroit, which I really enjoyed. Um, and they're great people and I had a good time. But the rest of them really headed west or north. And, um, and as strapped as doctors are, I mean, most professionals are already having husbands, wives, kids, houses, cars. When we're getting out of training and we have nothing, we don't have a decent car and you're, you're six figures in debt, you know, you've got to be something special to want to head into the inner city and, and, and work with a difficult group because they are not as well educated. So they use the ER for their care instead of seeing the doctors. They don't take the medicine because if they don't feel diabetes or they don't feel high blood pressure, or they don't feel, they tend to have more heart attacks and strokes and, and they're harder to take care of. And just as a follow-up to that, did you, do you think that more qualified like doctors that aren't in the Detroit area, like the interstate, inner city area, do you think that they would like try to get out of there like once if they had the opportunity is that why they're not as qualified there yeah and, and it's not as is it's not as sought after they may do their rotation through there to get some experience but so that would be you know one of the things that maybe like like the university of michigan med school i've been did my interventional training my cardiology training and everything there they have an excess of money so they should probably in order to get our state and government funds if they could all get on the same page maybe that money should be withheld unless they partner with some of the inner city and then they can do an exchange program again their residents and interns can come up and transfer it so they get learning those state-of-the-art and vice versa so that, that, that there's a sharing of the responsibility sharing of the wealth they don't need these funds of billions of dollars who knows where they're going so I, I just think it's a matter of, of it's not no one's taxes have to go crazy but when 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 the University of Michigan makes more off of a football game than some of these hospitals have money coming in in five years, it seems like we should be able to shift funds one way or the other. Mm -hmm. 
Next question was just in general, as a doctor, have you had any other types of encounters with unfair treatment, like relating to healthcare, like other than COVID-related ones? So I tend to spend um, probably a little more time with my patients than uh, than my, my staff would like me to. But uh, you know, um, there's a lot of details in the testing we order or don't order, and a lot of times I don't think anyone's paying attention to the little things, and things get missed and they get missed a lot. And in the inner city hospital practices, they give the residents a bunch of of the teaching service, which again, they're not probably getting a strict oversight. So I tend to find stuff that's missed. I find stuff that someone maybe had them on the wrong medicine or uh, the sugars are crazy high and someone yells at them to watch their sugars and, and eat better and then they let them go when really they needed a far more aggressive approach. So it's under, it's under treatment. I think more than they go out of their way to not. And a lot of the Medicaid, um, especially the HMOs, don't necessarily pay very well. So I see maybe a patient comes in with a Medicaid HMO, they get in and out very quickly, and, and only the most likely things are checked, but if you had a Medicare patient with a good supplement, they, they stay in for three, four, five days, getting maybe some unnecessary testing. So I, I think a lot of it is more money-driven than it is necessarily being, they're prejudiced against their insurance, which leads back to, well, they come from a poorer background, so this is what they have. So. They should all just be treated the same, and, and that's a problem. And, and it used to be a lot of the, the lawsuits. Everyone wanted to cover their butts and over-treat and over-treat. Now it's not so much that. It's just if it's not going to make a profit for the hospital, the hospital is discouraged and then go. So overall, what would you say are like the most dominant challenges in addressing these disparities, and maybe how can we overcome them as a community? I think a lot of it would be taken care of if they had decent access to decent insurance. So when it was the 20 to 30 million people that needed insurance and, and you know the other 85% of the country was okay with theirs, really we could have used a lot of that money that was made to try and make it completely even just to make it so theirs is definitely higher quality. Expand Medicaid, make it cover more. I mean that would have been a very simple thing to do, educating them. Now when I see my inner city patients, whether they're white, black or whatever color they might be, they come in and a lot of them don't even understand what they have available to them. So I get a young lady with her babies and I said, well, why aren't you on Medicaid? And she said to me, because I'm not 65. So they're not, they don't even understand what they have access to. And so a lot of the money that we go to trying to level the playing field really could be sent to education, expanding their, their care, upgrading some of the facilities, the multi-trillion dollar changeover that was Obamacare really could have gone to, to targeting the people that needed it the most. Relating to the healthcare, and you said that like a big problem is like lack of like ability to get good healthcare. We were doing some research before, and I think it was called the Medicare Modernization Act. Have you heard about that? Because I heard that ultimately like resulted in insurance companies being more privatized to the point where they're like more about earning the money rather than helping the people. So people who have less money can't really afford the insurance as much. Well, so anytime we we try to do one or the other, where there's no government oversight to take care of Medicaid and Medicare patients, or we have it all governmental, we seem to get into some problems. So when it was, when Obamacare was in its full pledge, my patients, because I was one of the few guys that accepted it, would still have a $400 a month deductible. And 400 times 12 months, that's $5,000. I mean, they can't, they, if they made 30,000, you're talking about one in five, one in six dollars after taxes. It just wasn't if they were off on what they said they made and they had to go back and pay it back. 
So they would come into the office for assignment. It was good to see them. They needed to be seen for a long time, but then they say, but don't do much because I can't afford the 400. But what do you think I have? <laughs> like, well, I can't just put my medicines without some testing. But if we make it too privatized, then those are the patients that do get left out. But again, a lot of money that goes to these hospitals that pay for the house staff, like the residents and stuff, it comes from Medicare, it comes from Medicaid, it comes from the government. So you've got to tie those to strings of, okay, if your system wants this, then you're going to take X amount of our Medicaid patients, you're going to put them into your system, and you're going to give them good care. Um, you know, what they've done with the car and the insurances, right? Like the general, they take a bunch of really good high, uh, uh, scores, put them in with a lot of the low, it all evens out, everyone sort of cost shares, and now people with even bad credit can get covered for their coverage. Well, if that was the case and they could cross borders, maybe health share of healthcare like the general could be cropping up. And then more of the people want to get those into their network to dilute out the cost, then it would work. But it's got to be a joint effort. It can't be a socialized, which is too big. And it can't be all private practice, because then it'll be like Blue Cross, which was completely unaffordable. It still is now. So, so it just, I don't, I don't like, um, and we lack moderation and middle ground in our government for way too long. But, but really, we, we could have really helped the 15 to 20% of the people that needed it better than trying to just re-gut the whole thing. And now we're sort of stuck between the two. I'm not sure what's going to happen at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. That is a rising issue that I've been seeing a lot lately. It's, it's awful. I mean, my patients, um, my patients are, are like, you know, beside themselves. And I, I find myself having to pre-authorize or go to bat on the simplest things that they should have been able to easily have gotten old generic drugs. I shouldn't have to go and do all these things. But the, the ones that are these low-end insurers, this is how they keep their costs down. And so they get very attractive to people to buy them, and then they find out everything they want has to be contended. It's, it's, it's not, it's not. And if you don't have to tax a living daylight to everybody, I really do think we have plenty of money. We have slack in the system. It just, it just needs to be the government from the feds and then down to the state level. You have to coordinate. And they've got plenty of money, and no one wants to lose that money no matter how much they have. If you want our money from the tax dollars, this is what you need to do to ensure our citizens are getting good care. I don't think that's unreasonable. It's not, yeah. So that was our last question. Do you have anything you would like to say? No, you know what? And I think I think um, this is it, it's a great topic, and especially with the disparity and and the uh, the death rates. Now, the riots didn't help, you know, because no one was wearing a lot of masks and everyone was close quarters. And then um, I'm pretty sure he's our ex-president, but um, the ex-president um, leading these huge rallies with no masks and that type of stuff. So. You know, we may not have the complete answer to COVID, but I'm pretty sure keeping our masks on, social distancing, washing our hands, and and getting the vaccine when it's available doesn't sound like it's too much to ask. Thank you so much for joining You're us. Welcome, girls. Thank you. Good luck Thanks. with your project. Yeah, we learned a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Take care now. You too. Bye. Bye.